Good morning. If I don't have the pleasure of knowing you, my name is Emily Vermilia. I currently serve. Thank you. I currently serve as the executive pastor at College Wesleyan Church and then have the privilege to be a professor, an adjunct professor of worship here as well as the assistant coach for the women's swimming team. They can pay me for that shout out later. I've been fighting a cold this week and so at about 4 o'clock this morning I woke up with one thought in mind and that was, you're preaching at IW's chapel the Friday following summit. The good news is, I hear God has done some wonderful things in your midst this week, and I give him praise and glory for that. The other side of it is, this is like the 25th time you've been in chapel this week, right? So I'm going to forego conventional wisdom, and I would like to start today with the end in mind. I want to tell you right from the beginning what I want you to hear, and that is this, that you as college students are essential to the life and mission of the local church. We don't just like you, we don't just want you to feel welcome. You are essential. And so if you hear nothing else I say today, I hope you'll remember that, and I hope you will consider this, that while you are blessed and privileged to attend a Christian university where you have the opportunity to worship and be discipled in any number of places and ways, the reality is this is not the local church. And I hope that truth will penetrate today and you will be compelled to even this year here in Marion invest yourself deeply in a local congregation. So now I've put that out there for you to consider and if you can hang with me a few minutes longer, I want to dive a little deeper. Something that I've been told about myself is that I am a people-loving introvert. That means I like to talk, but usually I want to talk to people I know. So I want to get to know something about this group today, something very specific, a moment of participation. This seems like a very interactive crowd today. By show of hands, how many of you would call yourself runners? Let's see it. Let's see all the runners in the room. It's a lot of you, so let me sharpen the question just a little. How many of you are actual runners? You don't just like the idea or the gear of running, but day after day you get out there pounding the pavement mile after mile. You do those like 500K races. Yeah, let's see it. Let's see it. Be proud. Okay, you people are strange. I'm kidding, kind of. But if you ask me to describe myself as three things I am not, at the top of the list would be a runner. I grew up a pool rat. I probably uh, swallowed more chlorinated water by the age of 10 as is contained in most backyard swimming pools. But running has never been my thing and it's not for lack of trying, okay? I've done the whole couch to 5K thing a few times. I've set New Year's resolutions where I started running on January 1st and then tried to increase my mileage daily or yardage as the case might have been. But I'm telling you, I'm not a runner. So you can imagine my surprise years ago one day when my son came home and told me he signed up in junior high for the cross-country team. At first I was flabbergasted, and then I decided this must be a good thing because no one voluntarily does that aside from hearing a word from God. So I wanted to be a supportive parent. I went to his first cross-country meet, and my first victory was finding the starting line. I did this because I noticed a mob of children gathered together. 
I got over there and I heard a gun shout, uh, shoot off and then I saw this mob of kids start running toward me and before I knew it, they had passed me and gone into this area of trees and just as quickly as they passed me, all of the parents who had been standing beside me a millisecond before screaming also suddenly disappeared and I had no idea where anyone was going. And so I stood there for the next 10 to 12 minutes unaware that in this sport it's like a scavenger hunt. You have to go find the finish line. I am not a runner. So my son kept running through high school and now he added track and field to his list of activities. And then something very strange happened to me. I found myself at track meets sitting in bleachers talking to other parents about the gait of one runner versus another and the strategy that was being employed in this race or that as if I had any idea what I was talking about. So even though I myself am running challenged, I suddenly realized that I was fascinated by the smallest nuances of this sport. And one very fine detail in particular, the exchange zone. Now, for those of you track and field runners out there, you know what I'm talking about. But for those of you like me for whom running is the equivalent of a bad word, let me explain that the exchange zone is the 20 meters on the track, about 65 feet, in which a relay baton has to be passed from one runner to the next. Hours, I'm told, can be spent in the exchange zone, practicing the passing of the baton from, from one runner to the next one. And as I've come to understand it, this is because the exchange zone is the place that can make or break a great relay team. Sometimes I wonder if this is infuriating to you track athletes out there, because you spend all this time training and running, and then it all comes down to how well you can hand a stick to somebody else. That aside, it would be an understatement to say that the exchange zone has been the Achilles heel of many great relay teams throughout track and field history. In just the past two decades alone, this has most certainly been the case for the U.S. men's 4x100 relay team at World Championship and Olympic Games. Nine times these teams have been disqualified for their performances in this seemingly minuscule portion of the race. Nine times in 22 years. This is not a, stout, a stat any accomplished athlete would want to tout. And here's the worst of it. At the most recent Olympic Games in 2016 in Rio, after finishing third in the event final and having taken a victory lap around the track, draped an American flag, celebrating their bronze medals, the team members were notified that once again, the exchange zone had gotten the better of them. You see, upon reviewing the tapes of the first handoff in Exchange Zone 1, officials determined that Olympian Justin Gatlin had received the baton from lead runner Mike Rogers a fraction of a step too early. And I remember watching this all go down live in my living room, and it was this terrible moment where their victory lap stopped abruptly as news of their disqualification was posted on the stadium's jumbotron alongside picture, the video, of their absolutely devastated faces. The exchange zone is a precarious place for runners. Whereas in most track events, a single runner is given his or her own lane and then has to execute the race individually, the exchange zone is the place in the sport that requires two team members to be completely dependent upon each other. There are two parties at work in the exchange zone, a passer and a receiver. And both are necessary and both must execute their roles with precision and assertiveness if they are to succeed in their race. 
But the exchange zone is also a place that can be leveraged to a relay team's great advantage. Because you see, if both the passer and the receiver can choreograph their moves into and out of the exchange zone without decreasing their speed or losing momentum, the result is typically this dynamic burst of energy that can catapult a team into greatness. Now, obviously, I am not the first person to use a running metaphor to describe the life of faith. Countless times in scripture, we are encouraged to run in such a way that we might win, to press toward the goal for the prize, to run with endurance the race that is set before us, and to finish the fight, to finish the course, and to keep the faith. The Apostle Paul, who penned many of these encouragements, was, of course, a prolific missionary and champion for the gospel of Christ. His ministry and church planning efforts are responsible for much of the church's foundation and expansion during the first century throughout Asia Minor and Europe. And his fervor for the gospel and his diligence in dedicating his life to sharing Christ with others really was and is unparalleled throughout history. And while Paul was wholly and completely dedicated to the building up of Christ's church, I think it's important to note that he understood something I think we can often forget. And that is this. The building of the church is not something that happens individually. It's not an individual sport. So while Paul is typically thought of as a passer of the baton of Christianity, and I'll get to that in a moment, I think it's important, it's important that we remember Barnabas, his mentor, who passed the baton to Paul in the first place. He prepared Paul to run his leg of the race. And so having been a recipient himself of that baton of faith, Paul knew that every drop of sweat, every ounce of blood he shed, every mile he walked, every persecution he faced on behalf of the gospel was only going to be as impacting as he was able to empower and equip others for that same type of kingdom-building work. I think Paul knew what many church historians today proclaim, and that is that no truly great movement of the church ever really happens within one person's lifetime. Think about just the past millennium alone. There was about 500 years between the Great Schism and the Reformation, and then another 500 years approximately between the Reformation and our modern era, some call it the Great Emergence, so these are just mile markers in the church's modern history, seasons where we note significant and lasting changes that have marked and shaped the life and praxis of the church. So Paul knew he didn't live in the age of Adam or Noah or Methuselah. He wouldn't have a 900-year lifetime, and yet he understood the staying power of the church of Jesus Christ. And in his great wisdom, he not only devoted his life to evangelism and proclamation of the gospel, but also to being a professional baton passer. Paul understood the importance of the exchange zone, that there would be a time where all of his work and effort and passion would come down to something like 20 meters where he would hand off the baton of faith to those who would live into a time and space on this earth that he himself would never see. We know that Paul was diligent in preparing for the exchange zone because we read of countless people he intentionally and purposefully took on as mentees or running partners, if you will. Receivers, those he wanted to take the baton of faith from him. Titus, 
Silas, Silvanus, Sosthenes, Aquila, Priscilla, Onesimus, Phoebe. The list is exhaustive and impressive. But for me, this intentional and purposeful preparation for the exchange zone by Paul is most beautifully demonstrated in his relationship to Timothy. Now, if you don't know much about Timothy, he was a young guy from Lystra, which is a part of modern-day Turkey. And his father was a Greek and his mother was a Jew. And upon meeting Paul during his second missionary journey through the area, Timothy became his apprentice. He learned Paul's methods of teaching. He was impacted by Paul's zeal for the gospel. And he followed him to the most dangerous places on earth, studying his ways and supporting his ministry. The truth is, Timothy probably wasn't an obvious candidate to be Paul's partner for ministry. Based on the letters Paul wrote to him, we know a couple of things about Timothy. First of all, he was considered by most to be far too young for leadership. Second, we know he wasn't in the greatest of health. He had an ongoing stomach ailment that he battled with. And as if that wasn't enough, we also read that Timothy was perhaps quite timid. So this probably wasn't the resume of an ideal teammate for Paul by most people's standards. But here's the thing about Timothy. He was willing. He showed up. He was malleable and open to learning from Paul. He wasn't looking for the spotlight. I think we could say about Timothy that he understood that his role in spreading the gospel was not something he could do alone, but something that he was called to do in community as a team. So Timothy dutifully positioned himself in the exchange zone. He spent years watching and observing Paul, assisting him in preparation for a day when he would be given the baton and expected to run his leg of the race in leading the church of Jesus Christ. Timothy continued to follow Paul, and as he did, over time, he was given more and more responsibility until the day came when Paul felt that they should separate. He went on in his missionary endeavors, and he left Timothy at Ephesus, which was an interesting place at the time, a place where false teaching had begun to infiltrate the church. But Paul was confident that Timothy was ready for this part of the challenge. Paul went on to Rome where he would be jailed for his preaching of the gospel and where he awaited trial. And in that jail cell, he penned his second letter to Timothy, what we just heard read earlier, part of it. And we understand that this was a sort of last will and testament that Paul was leaving to his mentee, a final encouragement for the journey that would lie ahead of him. In this letter, Paul reminds his protege that he must now not only run his leg of the race, but he must do so with the next exchange zone in mind. That while he was now a receiver of the baton of faith, he would soon become a passer as well. Paul's words in this letter regarding the exchange zone are clear. He says, Timothy, the words you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. You see, Paul didn't wait till the end of his life or ministry to begin preparing for the exchange zone. And I think it's through his example and actions that we could argue that the passing of faith and the work of spreading the gospel is the mission of the church, and that in order to ensure that each generation can hear and know of Christ's salvation and lordship, we have to prepare for the exchange zone with intentionality and purpose. 
But as I mentioned earlier, the exchange zone is not only a place where the baton is passed, also where it is received. And so if you're sitting here wondering how all this relates to what I said back in the beginning of our time together, that you as college students are essential to the mission and the life of the local church, here it is. You see, I think your college years are a time of preparation for the exchange zone. It's a place and a time that requires unusual practice and precision. And these four or five or six years that you've been given are the space you have to prepare for this extremely important exchange. Because if the mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel of Christ and to ensure the passing of the good news from one generation to the next, to pass the baton of faith, then no matter how much the current generation of church leadership prepares for the exchange zone, it's only going to be as effective as there is someone equally prepared to receive it and run it into the next age of the church. In other words, your impact on the local church, even though you're young, even though you don't have a lot of money, I know, even though you don't have much time that's spent outside of your studies and your professional development, and even though I would imagine for some of you who grew up in the church, you've spent time in children's church and youth ministry, now you go to church and you kind of feel like a fish out of water. Let me tell you that your impact is that in showing up and acclimating yourselves to the doctrine and practices of a local body in these early years of adulthood, you are allowing the church to fulfill her mission to train and equip the next generation of believers. You are taking your place in the exchange zone, practicing and perfecting the handoff so that when the time comes, you can receive the baton of faith and run your leg of the race, leading the church into the next era. But remember, the exchange zone is a very short, specific location where precision is key. So overshooting and undershooting this window, this space, is a common problem in this discipline. And while the pastor has an enormous role to play in this exchange, I want to focus for our last few minutes on you as receivers in this season of your life today. You see, if a receiver of the baton gets too far ahead of the timing and the pace or the passer, he or she will often overshoot the exchange zone. And this results in the baton not making it into the hands of the receivers within that 20-meter window. Oftentimes when a pastor senses that his receiver is overshooting that distance, he or she will lunge forward attempting to get the baton in the hand of that person that's too far out. And the baton is dropped. They are disqualified. Or as was the case for the 2016 Olympic team, the receiver can reach for the rod too early and though the exchange does take place, it happens before its proper time resulting in a premature launch, which doesn't maximize the impact of either runner. It's not in the best interest of the greater whole. So you see, the role of the receiver really can't be understated in this ecclesial race. The receiver can't become impatient or attempt to run his leg of the race before it's time. And having spent the last 12 years working in a college church, I can tell you I know this is a common frustration for some college students. You feel ready. You're rearing to go. You want to be tapped with responsibility. And this type of energy and gumption and drive is a remarkable thing. But let me caution you that if it is not harnessed properly, and if it is launched prematurely, it will not result in the success of the greater whole. 
So how do you guys as college students do this? How do you prepare yourself to receive the baton of faith and run your leg of the race that is yet to come? I want to give you three ideas this morning. The first one is be present. This is a crazy but true story. A few years ago, I was sitting at a track meet, and we'd made it about halfway through the order of events, about to start the boys' 4 by 100 meter relay. This was not an Olympic meet, okay? This was three very small Indiana high school teams, and if I'm completely honest, one of them was terrible. So the gun goes off, and the first two teams go shooting out of the blocks. My eye naturally goes to the little engine that could in the back, the third team. They start, the first runner runs around the first turn, and he hands his baton off to the second runner. And as the second runner starts to shoot down the stretch, it occurs to me to look down to the exchange zone at turn three, only to realize no one is there. At the same time, out of this corner of my eye, I see this skinny kid in a matching singlet go charging across the infield, recognizing he's supposed to be somewhere he's not, and as if he can beat his teammate down the stretch. That didn't work out so well. <laughs> the first step to finding success in the exchange zone is to be present. And I know that sounds simple, but what we're finding more and more is that college students who attend Christian universities, by and large, are not going to church. A few years ago, an administrator at a Christian university in North America did a little experiment. He picked the most popular church hour, which is 10 to 11 a.m. nationally. And he went door to door on his campus through the dorms, knocking on doors to see who would answer. If no one answered, he gave them the benefit of the doubt. He assumed they were at church. Never mind the fact that they might just still be sleeping or at Starbucks. He gave them the benefit of the doubt. What he found was that 70% of the doors he knocked on had students who answered the door. Most of them had bedhead and were bleary-eyed, having been abruptly awakened by this dean of student life. But when he asked these students if they had already been or were planning to go to church, almost every one of them said no. Didn't really see any reason to do so. And like the runner who approached the exchange zone with no teammate to pass the baton to, so the church's outlook on the future grows more and more bleak. This isn't rocket science, you guys. And like me, you can know almost nothing about running or relays to know that if a team member doesn't show up, nothing good's going to come from that. In choosing Timothy as his protege, Paul may not have made an obvious choice, but he selected someone who was present and engaged. And as the old adage goes, 80% of success in life is just showing up. So be present in a local church. The second way you as college students can impact the church is to be patient. What a mom thing to say, but be patient. As a receiver, your job in this season of your lives is to prepare to accept the baton, to prepare. You have to be patient, recognizing that the person currently running their leg of the race before you is doing everything they can to get to that exchange zone. And I guarantee you, you're not going to agree with the way they choose to run their race 100%. But assuming you're present and you've positioned yourself within the church, your job is to now patiently wait for the exchange. Be observant and steadfast. Prepare yourself for the all-important moment that will come when it is your time to run. But resist the temptation to become overzealous and like Justin Gatlin, snatch the baton too early. 
I can tell you from my own experience that this was and is the great flaw of my own generation. I went to college with a lot of people who were very diligent in positioning themselves well in the church. But they got impatient. They decided they were ready to run and they took off before it was their time. They didn't want to study the approach of their pastor. And so they just accelerated into their leg of the race prematurely. And I can't tell you how many of my peers during the past 20 years have burned out and left the church. Some of them will tell you they're disgruntled because of some interaction they had with this pastor or that. But most of them describe a scenario that sort of sounds like they took off and got 50 meters down the stretch only to realize they had no baton in hand. They weren't connected to any greater whole. And so because they had not received the tools they needed, they had nothing to pass forward to the next generation. Without a baton, there is no possibility to win. Paul and Timothy remind us that this is not an individual event. That the race we, the church, are running is a relay and we are dependent upon one another. So be patient, remain present in the church, study the approach of those preparing to pass you the baton, and then finally, use this special season of your life for practice. I said it before, I'm told that great relay teams will spend hours practicing the exchange, spending time in the exchange zone. And this is a little crazy to me because I think, well, you're runners, right? Like you should be doing speed drills or building muscle. But the truth is it doesn't matter how fast you are or how strong you are if you can't complete the exchange. So the time you spend learning the craft of the exchange is critical. Go beyond, one step beyond just attending worship. Though please do that if you're not doing that. Let that be your first step. But if you're already doing that faithfully, go one step further Subject yourself to something that takes you slightly out of your comfort zone. Volunteer to serve, an usher, a greeter, a child Sunday school teacher, a youth sponsor, a worship participant. There are so many ways to serve the church, but choose something that forces you to look beyond yourself to the greater needs of the whole. Because through your interaction with the body of Christ in a local congregation, you will be shaped and formed. I believe it is one of the most formative ways that we understand the love of God. And you will be engaging in a practice of actively preparing for the leg of the race that you have yet to run. Why are you as college students essential to the life and mission of the local church? It's because you help us fulfill the mission of entrusting reliable people with the gospel of Jesus, people who will be qualified to teach others so that the lordship of Christ will be proclaimed and known from generation to generation. Get into a local church, folks. It will change your life. And with that in your mind, will you stand and let me pray for you today? God, it is my deepest petition that you would instill in each of these young men and women a sense of love and value for your church. And in a season where they are making so many important decisions, I ask that you would give them eyes to see the role you desire them to play in your kingdom work, and that you would help them to position themselves for the leg of the race that you've called them to run. For those who have a local church that they attend each week, I pray that you would deepen their love for that community. Help them to sow into the fabric of, of these places in ever-deepening ways and use these churches to help mold and shape them into your likeness. For those of you who haven't yet found a community, 
I pray over you that God would lead you to one. And we ask, Lord, that you would give them courage and discipline to visit places and to approach each visit with a spirit of what can be learned and contributed instead of what can be criticized or consumed. Use this season of life, God, to prepare each of these people to run their leg of the race that you've called them to. Empower, equip, encourage, and engage them as you see fit and help the body of Christ that is gathered in these various locations to embrace and receive each one, pressing towards the goal together so that we might receive the prize you have prepared for us, your children. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day.